I invite you to take your Bibles this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one underneath the chair you're sitting in or close to you. If you turn in the Old Testament to Psalm 19, and as you're turning there, I invite you also to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. Psalm 19, and I'll read this chapter. The choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor their words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Verse 10, more to be desired than they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, and I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray together again. Father, thank you that we could dwell again in your house today, together on the first day of the week. Thank you, Lord, that by the Spirit that you dwell in your house, the church already, and believers, that you've been so good and so kind and so gracious in Christ that you would take up residence in us. And now we assemble as your gathered church to hear you speak, Lord, as we sang earlier. Speak, O Lord. Thank you for your word. Help us to understand it. Help us to know how to live it out. Help us to be people who submit to your authority and yours alone, our King. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. If someone wants to tell you that they've got a secret, I've got a secret, and the only way you're going to know it is if I tell you. Well, that'd just about drive you mad, wouldn't it? Some people do that to you sometimes. They might say, guess who's pregnant? I'm not telling Wouldn't that just drive you nuts? Guess who's getting married? Well, I'm not telling. That'd just drive you crazy. The only way you're going to know, unless you torture them, is if they tell you. And I want to share with you this morning, when it comes to this secret of life that we kind of go through each week and we're trying to figure out, is life meaningless? Life seems like a rat race. We wonder 
sometimes people think in the world is, what's going to motivate us to get up Monday morning and or go back to work tonight and do everything over again that we did last week? What, what's, what's the purpose in all of it? And the, and, and the good news is, is that God makes himself known. This is a God who has not kept himself secret. He's revealed himself to us. And because of that, we're not just running a rat race. We're not just living for the weekend. Life is just not meaningless. We're not just going to work, going to week, going to church or whatever. There's a purpose in all of it because God has spoken. Carl Henry, theologian, says God loves us so much that he forfeited his own personal privacy to reveal himself to sinful creatures that we might know him. He forfeited his own personal privacy. God is not required that he would make himself known. Yet this is the God who does so. Our God, what we see in Psalm 19, we're reading these words written by David but inspired by God. God saying through Psalm 19, I want you to know me. There's a glaring reality in the universe and it's not you, it's me, God's saying. You've been created for his glory. Life's not a rat race. It's not just do the best you can, survival of the fittest. There's a purpose higher than that. It's to know this God. He's a God that wants to be known. That's who we've come to worship this morning. The God that's sending the snowfall outside our windows is this God who's saying, look, can you make that happen? No, but I'm sending it and I've given you eyes to see and senses to take it in so that you might conclude not that that's a product of random chance or a great big explosion, but that I'm God. God's made you in such a way that you can understand these things and observe these things and conclude that he is God. And he's a great God. And so, God has spoken. And it makes all the difference in the world because if God has not spoken, then how do we know how to live and how do we know there's any meaning in life and, or anything's worth it? It's enough to drive us mad. And indeed, there are many people that have been. Let me share a couple things with you about the fact that God has spoken as we read Psalm 19. One of the things is this. Number one, God has spoken in different ways. Number one, God has spoken generally in creation. God has spoken generally in a general way in creation. Some of you have been snowbirds been to Florida this winter and are going somewhere later on, Texas. I think I heard somebody down there and Maybe some of you get to go to the beach when you go on some of these trips or you've been to an island somewhere or so forth. How do you know when you're at the beach? Because there's an ocean in front of you. To make the turn, go towards the sand. When you see the ocean, you're at the beach. You can't miss it. It's glaring right in front of you. You're surrounded. It's out in front of you by this ocean. And if you don't know that you're at the beach when you see the ocean, you're without excuse. This is what God is saying in verse 1. Look at your Bible. The heavens, just look up. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You're surrounded. Just like the ocean is, a, is an unmistakable reality staring you right in the face when you arrive at the beach and you're without excuse to think you're not at the beach. Look up at the sky. You're surrounded by it. We are surrounded by the inescapable reality 
of God's glory. And that's what we see in verse 1 in these verses of Scripture. We're surrounded by the inescapable. You can't escape it. It's all around us. The reality of the glory of God surrounds us. And we're without excuse to suppress it and to ignore it. Notice it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. What what do the heavens declare? The glory of God. The the sky above, what's it saying? It's saying, this is God's handiwork. This is is like uh, something uh, somebody was showing me the other day. They had stitched. This is my handiwork. This is what I've done with my hands. Well, this is God saying, this is what I've done with my hands. This is what I've done by his word. We're surrounded by the inescapable reality of God's glory. Our God is communicating continually to everybody. Notice what verse 1 says. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims. So God's declaring. He's proclaiming. Look at verse 2. Day to day. Day after day, in other words. Verse 2. Day after day or day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. You see that? There's a continual communication of God. There's not a moment passing by when the God who made you is crying out to you through what he has made that he is God. There's never a waking moment that you have or a sleeping moment for that matter when God is not crying out to you through what he's made that he is God. He's continually communicating. And our God is communicating not only continually, he's communicating globally. Verse 3 says, There is no speech nor their words whose voice is not heard. There's not a nation in this world that you can go to where the people do not understand the language of creation. Where there is not enough about what God has revealed himself about creation for them to understand that God did it. And that's the reason the Bible says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Every language, they may not understand East Tennessee, hillbilly, you may not understand each other, but we understand what God is saying up above. There's no voice, nor their words, whose voice is not heard. Verse 4, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So this God is communicating, he's communicating clearly, he's communicating continually, he's communicating globally. He illustrates it this way in the verses of Scripture. He says about the heavens, look at verse 4, you see the last line of verse 4, the last phrase of verse 4? In them, he's talking about the heavens, that's what the them is. In them, he has set a tent for the sun. So the psalmist is saying, and God is saying through him, the universe, or the heavens that we see with our eyes when we look up anyway, the stars, the moon, and everything, all of that is like a tent for the sun. Then look at verse 6. It's rising, talking about the sun, verse 6. It's rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. So he goes on to explain, verse 5, I actually skipped part of it, didn't I? Look back at verse 5, I read verse 6. Look at verse 5, so he's got the tent in the heavens, it's like a tent for the sun, and that sun, it says in verse 5, what's it do? It comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. So one way he illustrates the the in inescapable reality of the glory of God is it's like a man on his wedding day. And there's a lot of things we may forget. We better not, you know, sometimes we may not remember our anniversary. That's not a good thing. But certainly we might forget the date, but we won't forget that moment, that moment, that reality when we found the one we love and we were married to them. 
It's an inescapable reality that's etched upon our lives. And the sun coming out, when we see it anyway, it looks like it's coming out, but actually that's not what's happening, right? But that's our observation. When we see it, it's like, a, it's like this man who on his wedding day, it's a, it's, an, it's a reality you can't ignore. It's like a strong man running his course. It's like this athlete who's been trained to run a marathon, and when he gets in the race, the exhilarating reality of the moment of running that race is, is, is etched upon his mind. And he can't escape it. He can't get away from it. God's glory is like that moment. It's like that moment for that man coming out of the wedding chamber. It's like that moment for the, for the person, that reality of the moment of that person running the race. But it's like that. But it's better than that. Because God's glory is not just a moment. God's glory revealed is moment after moment that there's not a moment that he's not shining in full strength like the suns in the heavens every moment. The inescapable reality of God is always accessible to everyone. Romans chapter 1 tells us this. If you want to turn there in your Bible, or it may be up here on the screen, I'm not sure, but Romans chapter 1 tells us about how this inescapable reality is accessible to everybody. There's no one on the face of this earth unless they are uh, an infant, uh, a child who doesn't have the mental faculty to connect all the dots yet or someone that's mentally handicapped, outside of that, there's not anyone in the world who is not able to behold the glory of God in creation. Romans chapter 1 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. God's revealed his glory in such a way that there's not a person in this world who can say, I didn't know there was a God that I was supposed to worship, that I was accountable to, that there's right and wrong in the world. All people are held accountable for their sin because all have sinned against God. Whether they've heard of Jesus or not, they have sinned against God, born with a sin nature. If you notice in Romans chapter 1, if you keep reading, if you're familiar with Romans chapter 1, when Paul, inspired by God, chooses to illustrate how people ignore or hold down or suppress God's revelation in creation. He says if you want if you want a starking illustration of how bad man is when they suppress who God is in creation, look at women being with women and men being with men. Now, I don't say that for those of you who may be here this morning who have loved ones who, who have struggled with those issues or maybe even you yourself. But I'm saying it when we, when, because the Bible says it. When it's justified, when it's sought to be justified, then it's, it's, it's an absolute display. The son, the, the, Paul can't think of anything else to, to say how much 
further away can we get than that? And yet, we serve a merciful God, don't we? Who says about homosexuals, he says, such were some of you that he will cleanse those who engage in that sin. The reason I mention that is because you may have read about the United Methodist Church this week and, and it's uh, in, in battle long, it's been several years that they went to their general conferences, national conferences, and have wrestled with whether or not they ordered, ordained uh, gay ministers into the, as, as pastors whether they or, or let them have gay pastors <sighs> or allow pastors to do gay weddings. And it's been hotly debated, and to my surprise, and I think many others, the United Methodist Church came back and said, no, we will not allow that. Now, why is that? Well, it leads to the second point of the message this morning, that God has not only communicated generally in creation, but God has spoken specifically in the Bible. And so the reason the United Methodist Church did the right thing, hard thing, yes, Right thing? Absolutely. And if it's right, in some ways it shouldn't be hard if it's that clear. But God has spoken specifically in the Bible to tell us about who he is and about his ways. And so the United Methodist Church, it seems, has sought to look to the Bible to tell them what to do. Because God has not just spoken in creation and left left life up to us to figure out. I'm God, but you figure out your morality for yourself. Not the case. God has spoken specifically in the Bible. Here's some good news, brothers and sisters. God wants to make himself known. We see that in creation. And when we look at the Bible and how he's spoken specifically, we see this God who wants to make himself known is a God who wants to bless us. Because when you read these verses back in Psalm 19, you're reading about the benefits of the, of, the, of the word of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the ordinances of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord are right and pure, all these things. God wants to bless us. Our God, as someone has said about their dad who, who meets with them for devotions, he often says, he says, kids, God is great and God is good. Isn't that a good thing? Isn't it good that God is great? We see it in creation. God is good because he's given us a Bible to tell us who he is and and, and what he expects and how to be right with him. God is great and God is good. He wants to bless us. And so we see, beginning with verse 7, if you look at your Bible, the law of the Lord is perfect. And so you see several different phrases heaped upon one upon another, all talking about the word of the Lord. So verse 7, it says, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord. You see that in verse 7? Look at verse 8. The precepts of the Lord. The commandment of the Lord. Verse 9. The fear of the Lord. Next sentence. The rules of the Lord. All those of the Lord, those are always, the psalmist is talking about the word of God, the scripture, the Bible. It is of the Lord. These things are of the Lord. This is what God has spoken, not only in creation, God has spoken in this book, in this Bible And because of that, we are assured of the soul-satisfying blessings of God's grace. We are assured of the soul-satisfying blessings 
of God's grace. Because God said it. If man says it, if this is man's word, we have no assurance about it. But if God says it and he says, these things benefit you and there are blessings and there are promises here for you, then we are assured of that, are we not? And look at how the word of God describes the word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. So it, it, the, God's word is perfect. There, there's nothing that, there is nothing about God's word that's not true. There's no error in it. The testimony of the Lord is sure. You, you can count on it. You can put, your, you can, you can put your, your stake in the word. It's sure. It's steadfast. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right. None of them that are wrong. Verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure. Nothing impure about it. The fear of the Lord. That's another way of talking about Scripture. The fear of the Lord is clean. The rules of the Lord are true. Absolute truth is what we're seeing here in Scripture. So we're assured of the soul-satisfying blessings of God's grace. We're assured because of the Bible's authority. That's what we're being shown here. The Bible has authority. It is perfect. It is true. It is righteous altogether. So when God promises blessings by his grace and is good to us, we can be assured of it because of his authority. Because of his authority, the authority of God's word, because his word is perfect, then we look to his word alone to teach us about himself and about how to live and teach us about ourselves. The Bible alone is what we look for to teach us about God and about how to live. We try to be careful not to say more than what the Bible says. Sometimes we can do that if we're not careful. So if I say to you, brothers and sisters, we are told not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together, but encourage and exhort one another. And it's going to be very difficult to encourage and exhort one another in the context of one worship service on a Sunday morning, isn't it? The way the Lord wants us to. And so if I say, so you better come to Sunday school or you're sinning and you're going to hell, that would be saying more than what the Word says. And if you hear me say that, I'm sorry because that is not what I mean at all. I'm saying for your good and for your joy, be in biblical fellowship with other believers in the covenant that you've made a covenant with this church family. Be in, in fellowship with other believers in this body of Christ where you can grow in grace. And that may look like Sunday school. It may look like a small group. It may look like a one-on-one -on -one mentoring type of relationship with somebody in our church family. But you, you need to do it. You must do it, not because Pastor Steve's coming up with a bunch of rules and saying more than what God's Word says, but do it for your joy. So iron, where one man sharpens another, iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. It's that, it's that sort of thing. We need that. This is good, what we're doing here. But, it, but, that's, but there's more to be done in order to grow in Christ like God would have us to. So we must be sure to say what God says and not say more than what God says and not become Pharisees and legalistic and imposing all kinds of rules that are not spelled out in Scripture. All of us need to do that, don't we? Let me also say that the blessings of God's word are better than anything you could taste or want. And I say that because verse 10 says it. Look at it. More to be desired of they than gold, even much fine gold. More are they to be desired than 
$500,000. How about that? More sweeter also than honey and the drippings of a honeycomb or chocolate pie or whatever you want to think about in our context. It tastes better than that. The blessings of God's word, what God's going to do and how it's going to supply everything you need is better than anything you could want and anything you could taste. And you're assured to get it because of the authority of the Bible. His word is perfect. His word is sure. His word is righteous altogether. Why is it that God's word satisfies so deeply and so fully? My soul is satisfied because of the Bible's sufficiency. I know I'm going to have these blessings because of the Bible's authority. My soul is satisfied because of the Bible's sufficiency. Notice what the Bible says in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. What's it do? What's the next, what's the next phrase do? Reviving the soul, right? That's what, that's how, that's what God's word is going to do. It's going to revive your soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. What's it going to do? How's it going to benefit? Making wise the simple. So how's the Bible sufficient? It's going to make you wise. It's going to tell you what you need to do. The precepts of the Lord are right. It rejoices the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens the eyes. That's another blessing. The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. It tells us in verse 11 about the word of the Lord. Look at verse 11 in your Bible. Moreover, by them your servant is your servant warned. By them, by the word of God, we are warned. That's a blessing that God would warn us. That he's just not in the heavens saying, okay, please me. Figure it out. No, he creates us in his image so that we actually, without even having the law, have an awareness of right and wrong, which should lead us to, to come to the conclusion that how could we be the product of just random chance? What's the explanation for our conviction about morality in the world, even if we're not even Christians? It's because we're created in the image of God. But he does warn us. He does give us specific. He writes it down, gives us to in his word. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. So the Bible is sufficient. How can a young man keep his way pure? That's right, Lydia, by living according to your word. You Bible drill kids know these verses. What's 2 Timothy 3.16? Y'all say it with me. All scripture is profitable and is in breathed out or inspired by God. Breathed out, inspired by God, and is profitable. I'm getting messed up, see? For... Depending on what translation you got, doctrine, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, instruction in righteousness, different words to say the same thing. All God's word is breathed out by him and is profitable in all these ways. And I heard one of the kids saying it Wednesday night with Steve Wason and Awana. One of the kids that rides the bus was memorizing this verse that the man of God may be fully equipped, ready, ready for every good work. The word of God is sufficient for everything. And here's a question my son asked me last night when we were doing our devotions and preparing for this morning. He said, Dad, what about things that didn't exist in Bible times, kind of sins or issues that exist today that the Bible doesn't speak about because it didn't even exist in that time? Well, as one person pointed out, the scriptures are sufficient for teaching principles, 
but not for providing specific details about some things, right? For example, the Bible may not reference stem cell research. There wasn't such a thing, right? But it contains principles about the sanctity of human life that we look at and see what the Bible says about it. And we say we make a decision based on what scriptures, the principles of scripture. Same could be said about decisions we make about social media or playing sports. We look to the principles of scripture, the character of God. And we talk to other Christians. We do meet in those small groups and we do fellowship with other Christians. We say, okay, this is what I'm struggling with. I don't, it's not clearly addressed in the Bible what I should do in this situation. Here's what I'm reading and, and help me. Help me bring the principles of God's word to bear upon this decision I'm about to make. Because the Bible I know is sufficient to guide me right now. I'm not left in the dark about who God is. And I'm not left in the dark about what God wants. So if you need to make a decision in life, you're struggling with with whether something's right or wrong, search the scriptures and be with God's people and ask them to pray for you about this and, and share with you their own insights from the word of God that would bring the word of God to bear upon that particular situation you're dealing with and then submit to the word of God. Submit to the word of God. Let it come to bear and then do what it says, even if it's hard. Don't say, I know what the Bible says, but you're wrong. And I'm wrong at that point if we engage the scripture that way. So last night, a couple nights ago, I was talking to my kids about, we've been in the past couple weeks in our devotions talking about scripture. And, uh, and I said something to him one night. I said, guys, you, you've got to be sure that you believe this book, you believe this Bible, not because daddy says it's true or mom, but, but you come to believe it just like you believe in Jesus because you believe it, because you're convinced that the Bible is true. And I was talking to them about false teachers, and I said, there's one false teacher. There's a lot of false teachers out there, kids. And so I actually pulled one up on YouTube last night named Mike Murdoch. You might have heard of him he has something he, he refers to as wisdom keys, and he asks people to call in and give him money. And so my kids, I was telling them about this, so I, I just thought I'd let them see an example of it. Because one time I was home in Kansas City, I couldn't preach one Sunday, and I wanted to watch preaching on TV, laying there sick, and I turned on the TV, and all I could find was Mike Murdoch telling me to sow a seed and give money, and God would bless me. So I called the one I hated number, and the sweet little old lady from North Carolina said, Hi, would you like to sow a seed? And I said, No, I don't want to sow no seed. Actually, I do. And I shared with her a little bit about the gospel, and I questioned her on the phone. What in the world are you involved with here? I was just enraged. And so I shared with my kids this last night. I showed this on TV, and very explicitly, he's asking, sow your $1,000 seed, take it out of retirement if you need to, do this, do this. And I said, kids, that's false teaching. And I'm, and I'm saying to them, you will get duped by false teaching or by, or by all kinds of different decisions you make with friends and stuff in life if you don't believe in the authority of the Bible. My kids were puzzled by that. Well, why do people give them so much money? Why has he got this $3 million home and his own private zoo and all this stuff? Why do people give money to him? I, said, I don't know, but I know this. this. This Bible doesn't reign over them. They don't know what it says. 
So a crucial question I'd ask you this morning is, what do you believe about the Bible? What do you believe about the Bible? And secondly, I'd say assurance and satisfaction leads to prayerful submission. Assurance, remember these blessings, God is great, but he's good, and he wants to bless us, we have a relationship with him. The assurance of that and the satisfaction that comes from the promises of the word of God leads to prayerful submission. The reason I say that, you look at verse 12. Who can discern his errors? This is David's response. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. What's he doing? He's praying. God, I'm thinking about how glorious you are in creation. I'm looking at your word that I actually have access to and many people don't and seeing all your blessings. I'm shouting out, God, your word is is greater than anything I could want or anything I could taste. So he looks inwardly now and he says, God, cleanse me of anything that would hinder any of that, of tasting and enjoying your satisfying promises and blessings. Assurance, he he has assurance that what God's word says is true and he, he he knows what it's like to be satisfied by the word of God. So he cries out in prayer that God would help him to submit to his word. That's what's going on in verse 12 and 13. He wants nothing to do with sin. Do you see that? Whether it be hidden faults in verse 12, presumptuous sins, maybe even willful sins, He wants to be clear of it. He wants to please this God. How's that going to happen? God has spoken generally in creation and God has spoken specifically in the Bible. Thirdly, God has spoken finally by sending his son. He says in verse 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. He says, God, I'm surrounded by the inescapable reality of your glory. And all that really matters is whether what I say and what I think is acceptable in your sight. Psalmist says, David says, I'm not concerned about just a mere moral external morality, you know, that people can see an outward adherence to law. But God, even the hidden faults, my own motivations, God, I don't even know my own heart sometimes. Don't you feel that way about yourself? God says, or David says, Lord, show me those things. Lord, you know what they are. Some of them, I don't even need to wear some of my sins. God, cleanse me. Keep me from them. He speaks like Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount, that there's a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. He says, God, I want to be as you want me to be. And so he prays that, see the first word of verse 14, let He can't do it, but so he says, let, Lord, do something here. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. If you look back in verse 12, he said, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Who can discern his errors? I can't do this. Keep back, Lord, do this. Keep me back from these sins, he says in verse 13. He says in verse 13, let them not have dominion over me. God, you gotta do something here. Man looks on the outward appearance, you look at the heart, and God, you've got to keep me back from these things. I can't discern my own errors. I I can't do anything about my heart. 
So he's crying out to God in prayer, God, you're, you've revealed yourself in creation. You've spoken in your words. You've promised great, wonderful blessings we're assured of. So God, please do what I can't. Oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The only way his prayer is going to be answered if the Lord is his rock and, his is re, and is his redeemer. So David's prayer is a request, a prayer of desperation. He can't change his heart. How will his prayer be answered that he would be pleasing in God's sight? Jesus is the answer to David's prayer. Amen. The Lord is my rock and my redeemer. In Hebrews chapter 1, we're told this. If you want to turn with me or listen carefully. We're told in Hebrews chapter 1 that God spoke long, long ago. He's not talking about Star Wars here. He's talking about something really happened. Verse 1, long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's the scripture, right? That's the Bible. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Once and for all, the Bible says in the book of Jude, once for all the faith delivered to the saints, whom he appointed, the heir of all things, whom he also created the world. Jesus existed before the world was created because the world was created through him. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And look at what he does. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God has spoken finally through his son. His son not only came into the world, but his son made purification for sins. God says, you want to know how holy I am and who I really am and how much I'll bless you and how assured you can be of it? Then look at the cross. Look at my son hanging there. That's how holy I am. And look at the, and look at the blessings that will come to that, that those who place their faith and trust in him, they'll be purified of their sins, adopted into his family. Because he raises again three days later. God speaks finally and fully in his son. He is the rock. He is the redeemer. He is the fulfillment of Psalm 19. So, don't you just not love cloudy days? Some, for a lot of people, it can enhance or um, make their... Make their Depression even worse. Winter days are like that, overcast days. And certainly the ability to see the glory of God in creation today is somewhat clouded. At least we can't see the heavens. We can see the snow falling, though, and still see it, His glory. I'm also reminded that the glory of God's clouded because of our sin and our stubbornness. Our obsession with earthly pursuits is idolatry. Clouds our vision. But one day God is going to light up the new heavens and new earth. There will not be any sun there, but he'll be there himself. And beloved, there's not going to be any sin around us. And amen, there's not going to be any sin in us. Because Jesus makes purification for sins. God has spoken finally by sending his son. So let me conclude by saying this. 
Brothers and sisters, we're not living for the weekend. I mean, a lot of ways I'm living for Sunday to get here because I need it just as much as I'm zapped and I need to be with my church family. Hopefully I've been with my church family throughout the week in other ways at the same time though, right? We're not living for the weekend. <laughs> we're living for eternity. We're not just going through life. We're just, you're just not going to go back to work tonight and work all night long or, or tomorrow morning or, or, or do the same things you're doing with the kids every day and it seems like just a, a monotony and you wonder what's the purpose and meaning in all of it. We're not just living to get through life. We're living for eternity. There's a purpose behind all of it for him to be worshiped and glorified. So we gather one day a week to rest like we are this morning and to remember and to worship and to thank God to remind ourselves that there is an inescapable reality that is beyond our own earthly existence, and that's that God made us for his glory. That the reality of God's glory is literally blazing like the sun around us. And so we gather to remind ourselves that even though our horizontal pursuits during the week have drowned it out. We come to remind ourselves that God is still screaming loudly. He is God. And he's doing it through creation. He's screaming it out through his word. And he's screaming it out through his son that you've seen shining in your heart. That's why we need the church. And that's why we need one another. Would you bow your head with me? Father, I thank you for your word I thank you that you've been so gracious to give us access to your word. I'm reminded, Father, that that there's still millions who have no access to the Bible and their language can't read it, don't even know it exists, some of them. Some of them take it and have pieces of it and have to hide it. You've been so gracious to us. God, use us to make your word known to others. Help us, Father, to live in a way that we are submitting to your word and seeking to live by your word. We're not seeking to coast and not seeking to be comfortable. We're seeking to take up our cross. And like I read recently, Lord, every day that doesn't feel like death for the Christian is not normal. This is, this is a hard life. But a better day is coming. Even so, come Lord Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning you might be here and you're not sure if you have a relationship with God. We would love to talk with you about that. We'd love to talk with you about what sin is and about faith and repentance and explain more of that to you. And I'll be standing up here when we sing this song. We could talk now and we could just as well talk after the service is over or set up a time to do so. But But if that's you, you come and hunt us down, hunt us down during this time, and we'll talk and pray together. If you'd like to come and pray about something right now, you can. Otherwise, we're going to stand and want to praise our God that Jesus is better than everything. Let's stand together and praise him. There is no other so sure and steady. My hope is held in you. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, we have been to space and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus's body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.